you're listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. The New York Times's Anthony Tomasini describes today's guest as the shimmering soprano. She enjoys singing everything from opera's light lyric roles to oratorio to pop's classics. A partial list of roles to her credit includes Juliet in Romeo et Juliette, Kathy in The Student Prince, as well as roles in musical theater favorites like Sarah Brown in Guys and Dolls, Maria in West Side Story, Carrie in Carousel, Fiona in Brigadoon, and Lori in Oklahoma. On the concert stage, she has performed a broad spectrum of works, including Mozart's Carnation Mass and Requiem, and Haydn's Mass in the Time of War with the New England Symphonic Ensemble at Carnegie Hall. Enthusiastic about contemporary works, she has been active in many new operas at the prestigious Banff Center for the Arts, and in 2015 she created the role of Ruth Draper in Icarus Rising, a new dance opera about the life of Laura DeBosis. It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Kristen Plumley. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Oh, thank you for having me. Hello. Ruth Draper. She was a, an American actress, and mm-hmm. Icarus was a character in Greek mythology. How how did these two come together in a dance opera? <laughs> Laura DeBosis was a freedom fighter in uh, Mussolini's Italy, and he came to know Ruth through her performances. They had a very passionate love affair. He, of course, was a freedom fighter, so he was very involved in finding just freedom for, for his people, and he got involved with kind of an underground movement, he decided at one point that he needed to get all these flyers out to all the citizens of Rome, and he thought that the easiest way to do that would be to fly a plane and release them. So he got a plane. (laughs) Uh, He named it Pegasus, after the winged horse, of course. Then he took off and, and released all these flyers, and he was never seen again. There is a belief that he may have been shot down. He could have crashed, of course, but the history is very murky. He was doing something very risky, of course, and he was never heard from again. So, of course, then the uh, Icarus, the title of the piece, refers to the man who made wings out of wax, you know, and flew too close to the sun, of course, and they melted and he fell to the ground. So there's the reference there. But the relationship between Ruth and Laura was a very passionate one. They both understood each other's passions for the rights of people and for the arts. So that's how these two come together, which is sort of how we have opera and dance coming together. Everything mirrors each other. It is a dance opera in that the two main characters have shadows. Actually, some other characters do as well. So we had dance shadows. Everything that I sang, she would act out in dance. And at times, I did some simple dancing too. So did the, the, the two men. So it was really cool to see the interpretation of what was being expressed through music and words and also dance. What kind of dance would be involved? It was mostly modern. There were definitely some elements of ballet in there. It was just more expressive than any particular style. There were times when 
the Lauro dancer would pick up the roof dancer and do very, you know, kind of ballet moves in that way. But it was a lot of modern, just very expressive of whatever we were saying. So here you're involved in a dance production. In your bio, you have a repertoire that ranges from classical to pop. Do you mm-hmm. have a favorite type of repertoire? I grew up listening to musical theater. My parents were both very big fans of musical theater. In fact, they got engaged at a production of Kismet in the 50s. And in fact, my dad was just so clever. There's a song in the show Kismet called Baubles, Bangles, and Beads. And there's a line that goes, Someday he may buy me a ring, ring, And at that moment, my dad turned to my mom and presented her with an engagement ring. She said yes, of course. So that's my background. I grew up listening to it all the time. So I have a real love for musical theater. That's the first kind of music that I did. I started taking voice lessons, and the teacher said, You know, you have a good voice for opera. What do you think about that? And I thought, oh, opera, wow, that sounds really fancy and all that. But I said, sure, yeah, whatever. (laughs) So I was trained in that way. And what I really loved about that was learning all the languages. Um, I loved learning languages just to speak them. And so to learn them for opera was just right up my alley. So, yeah, I came to really love opera. I find it definitely more intense. There's a lot more to think about with opera, not only the music, which is just technically usually more difficult than musical theater. The characters are usually so involved, and sometimes the plot is just ridiculous, but you kind of overlook that because of all the, just everything that it's packed with, and then you have the languages too, and then you have all the other things going on on stage. It's a lot to take in. It's been called the perfect art form because it involves everything, performing arts and visual arts and dance and all that. And then concert work, I love that as well because you really just focus on the music because most of the time you are just standing there with the orchestra singing and you really, really think just about the music. Also, when you do concert work, if you're going away somewhere other than where you live to perform, you are away from home usually for a shorter amount of time than when you do an opera or a musical. So I can go away for a long weekend to do a concert piece, which is kind of nice um, when you have a family and all that. So all three, I just, I never turned down a chance to be on the stage and, and to sing. It appears that opera seems to be the most complex. What about musical theater? What challenges do you have in musical theater? I think in musical theater, you most of the time you want it to be a little more realistic than opera. Kind of more standard, your standard opera that's written long ago you're dealing with maybe kings and queens and regal people or gods and goddesses things like that whereas musical theater tends to be more everyday people in musical theater i guess i just want to keep it a little more real a little more accessible and not get into any of the sort of the opera moves or you know the grand opera kind of thing (laughs) but my characters which tend to be Women who are a little more down-to-earth anyway, I tend not to play the the queens and the princesses and the goddesses and all that. Those roles are sort of similar. You know, I tend to be a comic character, a younger character, just because of the way my voice sounds. So there's a, a certain earthiness that I try to keep with all those characters. Speaking of earthiness, I'd like to play a track from Glitter and Be Gay, which was from Candide. Could you mm-hmm. introduce that for us before we listen to it? Sure. Kunaganda is in love with Candide, 
and they're young and they're kind of naive and everything is hunky-dory. And Candide's teacher tries to teach him about life and like, hey, everything's not going to be like this. And in the course of the show, Kunigunda is kidnapped and falls under the, I'm not going to say tutelage, but she's, um, she's with someone who is giving her a lavish life in grand home and she has beautiful gowns to wear and all this jewelry in the song she's bemoaning this because she feels like she sold her soul to have this lavish lifestyle but she doesn't mind it that much why don't we listen to her (laughs) bemoaning in glitter and be gay great
That was Glitter and Be Gay from Candide, performed by my guest, Kristen Plumley. I don't think I asked you who your accompanists were on that. Yes, uh, it's Ron Levy. And where was this performed? This was at Montclair State University uh, a few years ago. I believe it was the day after Valentine's Day, and it was a concert of uh, various kinds of music. I just want to get back to your education. You went to Holy Cross College to study psychology. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose that field to study instead of music? (laughs) Why did you do that? Um, When I was in high school, actually all through my life, um, I had always sung in school choirs and I did town plays and, you know, I was doing all that stuff. When it came time to think about going to college, of course, I was thinking about going for music and my parents said, oh, we're not so sure about that. We don't think you can make a living. Why don't you choose something else that's a little safer? So I, I did very well in school, but I couldn't really pinpoint anything that I wanted to study other than music. So my senior year of high school, I took a, an introductory course in psychology, and I liked it. So I said, oh, okay, I'll be a psychology major. <laughs> With no real thought about what I was with a degree in psychology. So I went to Holy Cross College in Western Massachusetts. I got my degree in psychology. And afterwards, my parents said, well, you know, what are you going to do now? And I said, yeah, I still want to study music. (laughs) Um, I had been involved all through my college uh, experience with with shows. And uh, so they finally said, okay, you know, you're an adult now. Do what you want. So I ended up going to the Hart School of Music, which is part of the University of Hartford, Connecticut, and I got my graduate degree in vocal performance. While I was at Holy Cross, though, I knew that I was—I really was steering towards music. So I took uh, whatever courses I could that I would have taken in an undergrad music school situation: theory and composition, and ear training, and music history, things like that. So I kind of got all those out of the way so that when I went to graduate school for music, I had a minimum of remedial classes to make up. Did your uh, psychology studies in any way help you in interpreting characters or dealing with performance? I mean, who knows? Maybe. (laughs) You know, I I think uh, getting a bachelor's degree in psychology doesn't really set you up to do all kinds of psychotherapy on bizarre characters (laughs) that are going through all kinds of hijinks. But I would like to think that something of that snuck in there. If nothing else, I guess I could look a little more critically at characters and certainly studying any kind of psychology just helps you in life too. So real life situations. (laughs) You once said that performing on stage is like living in a magical world. What makes performing on stage so magical? Oh, Everything. First of all, well, I was a very, very shy child. I mean, I was sort of terrified of other people. If it weren't my immediate family and, you know, one or two very close friends, I was just terrified of people around me. I remember going to get ice cream, and my mom would give me a dollar and say, okay, go up and order your own ice cream. And I just, I, <laughs> I was like, I, would, I just wanted the earth to swallow me up. Starting at around... I think it was middle school. I started performing in shows and musicals, and I discovered, like, oh, wow, this is great, because whatever you say on stage, it's the character, it's not you, right? So you can kind of hide behind that. Mm-hmm. And so that allowed me to really come out of my shell in a very safe way for me. And I have since discovered how to talk to people, <laughs> luckily. 
but I still love that feeling of when you're on stage, you are somebody else, and that's just so it's safe in a way, you know, but it's also so magical because you get to express things that you may have felt or said yourself, but it's through someone else, so it's okay, quote unquote, and now just everything about the stage is fantastic, like I when I'm up on stage, I realize, okay, all these seats are pointed toward me. People are supposed to be watching me and listening to me and paying attention, and I'm giving them something very special that they wouldn't get in their everyday life. That, to me, is such a wonderful relationship. There's that energy on stage that I'm feeding to people, and their energy is, in turn, feeding me. And it's just a whole... I mean, for me, it's an emotional experience. It's a an intellectual experience. It's certainly physical, you know, just being there on stage. I, I love everything about it. The feeling of the lights on my face. Oh, the smell of backstage and the people dealing with some really fantastic people. I just love everything about it. You've performed in shows like Oklahoma and Die Fledermaus. These are at opposite ends of the language spectrum. How did you learn to sing these languages as well as the various other languages that you need to sing? And how many languages do you speak? Well, I only speak English fluently right now, unfortunately. I was pretty, really very good in French at one point because I was studying it as an adult because I've really had to get my French to be stronger. If you don't use it, you lose it. So that's kind of gone by the wayside. I studied languages just as anyone would study a language. In school, I studied Italian and German. I didn't formally study French in graduate school. That's why I took it later on as an adult. Those are the three main languages that I've studied for opera. I have had coachings with language coaches in ancient Czech, <laughs> uh, because I did a piece that was written in a, uh, an old uh, Czech dialect. I've had some coaching in Russian, and I took Spanish, actually, all through school, in middle school and high school, so pretty, you know, pretty solid with Spanish. Yeah, it's just, you know, learning the language just like you would learn it to speak it. And moving to today... Are you working on any projects? I know that you were working with several composers in a wide variety of styles. Can you give us some insights into any of these projects that you're doing? Of course, because of the pandemic and because of the fact that singers are the most dangerous people on the earth when it comes to that. Because when we sing, we are projecting our aerosols far away from us. There hasn't really been a lot of singing, at least in this country. Nothing live, anyway. I did have a few gigs that were canceled and, you know, hopefully will be rescheduled at some point. But um, like everybody else, I have pivoted to do other things. And as you mentioned, I'm working with some compo- uh, composers. Um, they're still writing pieces and they still want them to be recorded. So I'm doing some of that. I'm working with one composer that is writing music for a group of eight musicians and they're all different instruments and I'm the singer in that. His work is Jewish liturgical music, like a modern take on Jewish liturgical music, but that really connects it back to its roots. He says that he feels, you know, in the current time now in temples and in services, it's more of a folk feeling with like a guitar and let's sit around the campfire and sing. And he really wants to go back to the Jewish roots of music. He's written an entire service worth of pieces and we've been recording those little by little. His name is Ken Corneal and I've been working with Joseph Turin, who is a fairly well-known composer in this area. He's written, he has a large volume of music written for bands and also uh, orchestras and he's written some operas, all kinds of pieces 
song cycles and little tone poems and things like that. So whenever he comes up with something new, he asks me for soprano. He asks me to record with him, and that's always great fun. He's a great writer. And so speaking of which, I, I do believe that you have a piece that I recorded for him. The fir tree, yes. Okay, that's kind of a, a holiday-themed piece. Do you want to introduce it for us? Sure, sure. It's the story, it's a fairy tale. I believe it's a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale about a, a tree. It's the story of his life and how he's growing in the woods and he's very happy in the sunshine and then someone comes and cuts him down and puts him up to be a Christmas tree. Obviously, he goes, he has his time, he's all decorated, you know, for Christmas and he feels so special and then after Christmas is over, of course, he's dumped you know, outside, but then a little bird comes to build a nest in him. And so, so it's that. It's, it's the sweet fairy tale about the fir tree. And it also includes a narrator. Yes, yes. Can you tell us about the narrator? The narrator tells the story as it's written, and Joe actually did that part in this recording, and I sang the part of the fir tree, who is sort of like a, a child. You know, it sounds like a child's part. And then there are birds as well. I think the sun has a voice in there. All the natural characters are sung by me. Let's take a listen to you as the fir tree. The dew wept tears and the wind kissed the tree. Rejoice, they said, rejoice in me. Enjoy your youth, O oh tree, rejoice. Enjoy each night, enjoy each day. Don't wish your sweet young life away. Enjoy each wonder you hear and see. Enjoy this time and simply be. Be young and happy, young and free. Rejoice in being a fine fur tree. That was The Fir Tree, performed by my guest, Kristen Plumley. I want to keep in the holiday spirit here, and unfortunately, we're running out of time, but you did produce a holiday CD, and mm -hmm. I really think that we should take a listen to, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Mele Kalikimaka. Mele Kalikimaka, you got it. All right. Merry Christmas. And uh, <laughs> let's listen to that, and then... Tell us how we can get a hold of a copy of that, but first, let's take a listen to it. Okay. Melikalikimaka is the thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day. That's the island greeting that we send to you from the land where palm trees sway. Here we know that Christmas will be green and bright. The sun will shine all day and all the stars at night. Melikalikimaka is Hawaii's way to say Merry Christmas to you. Here 
Christmas will be green and bright. The sun will shine all day and all the stars at night. Mele Kalikimaka is a wise way to say Merry Christmas. A very Merry Christmas. A very, very, very Merry Christmas to you. You have 30 seconds to tell us how we can get a copy of that CD. <laughs> you can go to my website, www.kristinplumley.com, and there is a button right there. There's a picture of the album cover. There's a button that says, Buy My CD. And you just do that. You'll send me a message, and I will get it to you. Kristen Plumley, I'm so happy that you were able to take the time to speak with me, and I hope to hear from you again. We're going to close out with another one of your songs, Grateful. Have a wonderful rest of the year, and thanks again for being a guest. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio.